Welcome to Optimal, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Dickon Weatherby. And this podcast and my website all focus on one thing, and that's the quest for optimal health. Our goal is to help you to help your patients achieve optimal health so they can experience an optimal life. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google, and Spotify. And also make sure to go over to OptimalDX.com and check out our resources on the site. Now, without any further delay, is today's episode. Hi there, welcome to Optimal, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Dickon Weatherby. Welcome, welcome. And as always, joined by Beth Ellen DeLulio in Naples, Florida. How's it going, Beth? Hi, it's going great. Thank you. Well, here we are. We are at the cusp of December 2023. So this is probably our final podcast for the year. And we have a thing in our software called the AMA, or sort of ask me anything type of feature. And one of the things that Beth and I noticed from the submissions of questions that we get is that there's a high proportion of questions related to iron metabolism and iron biomarkers and what does low ferritin mean with this? And what does high ferritin mean with that? Right, Beth? So we've had, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we obviously answer the questions. So if you're interested, you can obviously go and look and read the answers that we provide. But I also asked Beth to do a deep dive into iron metabolism. She did a wonderful seven-part series that's in our research blog at OptimalDX.com. So what we wanted to do in our podcast today is kind of like do some greatest hits of the articles that Beth put together. So Shameless plug, go over to OptimalDX.com under the resources we have our research blog, and you can search under iron and you will be able to get these seven great articles, very informative, a lot of amazing information. So what we wanted to do today is kind of like touch in on some of those areas. So the, the article is basically split up into seven different parts. First part is just sort of an intro to iron metabolism, then the physiology, then we start looking at iron deficiency anemia, we start looking at iron overload, and then start looking at some of the biomarkers, and then some treatment ideas, and then finally, what we call our optimal takeaways. So I think one of the things that we'll jump into is kind of looking at iron physiology, because if you can understand how iron moves through the body, where it comes from, and what it is, you can kind of get a better sense of the different biomarkers. So I'm going to touch in on the physiology, and then Beth's going to move in and just talk about iron deficiency anemia. So I think one of the things we have to remember, iron is an essential trace mineral. It's very important for human metabolism. It produces hemoglobin, myoglobin, to some extent DNA. It also participates in mitochondrial electron transport, cell regulation, myelin production and maintenance. It's also the substance of iron in hemoglobin that gives blood its red color and accounts for much of the iron in the body. Now, I think an interesting point that comes from these articles is that the primary mechanism of balancing iron homeostasis is the regulation of intestinal absorption, as the body doesn't have a designated means to excrete iron. It's not like potassium or sodium, which uses the kidney as a means of regulation of biohormones like aldosterone. Iron doesn't really have a way to be excreted other than, I guess, through bleeding. But I wouldn't say that's, well, maybe female metabolism. It's a way that iron does get released out of the body. 
and therefore iron deficiency anemia preferentially affects our female patients mm -hmm. more than our male patients. One of the things I didn't know, Beth, was about this peptide hormone called hepcidin, which is the master regulator of iron absorption. I probably remember back to my biochemistry days many years ago and probably did talk about it. I think it's worth taking a look at this hormone called hepcidin. It is the master regulator of iron absorption. When it's around, its presence basically blocks iron absorption, while its absence facilitates iron absorption. So the failure to block iron absorption when needed leads to iron overload and vital organ damage. We'll talk a little bit about that in a few moments, the characteristics of a condition called hemochromatosis. On the other hand, overexpression of hepcidin can lead to insufficient iron absorption and anemia. And I thought one of the interesting things that I picked up here, Beth, was that chronic inflammatory states, including obesity, obesity being really regarded actually as an inflammatory condition in the body, can increase hepcidin expression and therefore contribute to iron deficiency. Another aspect too is gastric acid. So in naturopathic medicine, we talk a lot about stomach health and about making sure that there's adequate amounts of stomach acid being released and obviously faced with the populations here in the US and I'm sure in a lot of Western developed countries that are using proton pump inhibitors, therefore suppressing gastric acid output. This has a major impact on iron absorption. In fact, if you reduce gastric acid, it can actually substantially reduce iron absorption. Hepcidin also works closely with another protein called ferroportin, which directly regulates iron absorption from food the release of iron from the liver, because a lot of iron is stored in the liver, and the recycling of iron from macrophages. So as the body kind of recycles cells, recycles red blood cells, probably there's you know, absorption of iron into macrophages. And that's a sort of a way that we can recycle it. Beth, was there anything that you picked up about these two particular hormones and proteins that sort of st stuck out for you? Well, just say the hepcidin blocks iron, but the absence of it can cause an excess of iron to be absorbed, and that can lead to iron overload. Hmm. So that's as big of a problem for some folks. It can be fatal, just like iron deficiency anemia can be fatal. So again, it's the importance of balancing this hormone. It's not good or bad. It just has different certain job to do. And the absence of it, you don't want to say, well, let's just absorb as much iron as we can. That's bad, because that would lead to iron overload. So that's important, because some people just say, well, my serum iron is low, I need to take iron, and they take a ton of iron, mm -hmm. and then they absorb too much, and they end up with iron overload, even when it's not genetic. So the absence of it is, it can be just as detrimental. Mm -hmm. And it's actually, and the pro-inflammatory cytokines can stimulate it. So that's why obesity as an inflammatory condition can stimulate hepcidin production, which blocks iron, and that leads to anemia of chronic disease. It might not be iron deficiency, you're consuming enough, but you have this inflammatory state that increases hepcidin production and then, again, blocks iron and leads to deficiency or the anemia of chronic disease, really. And that's also known or called inflammatory anemia. So it's, it's really all about balance with mm -hmm. iron. It's important to remember. So anemia of chronic disease, I mean, I remember studying it, obviously, mm -hmm. and I don't think I've ever actually come across a patient with anemia of chronic disease. But it's one of those things that I always remember going, why did they call it anemia of chronic disease? You know, what <laughs> chronic disease are we looking at? I actually think now tying this in with a pro-inflammatory response or an inflammatory anemia is probably a much better way of looking mm -hmm. at it. I don't think we're going to get rid mm -hmm. of that term, but 
And inflammatory anemia, definitely, I think is something to think about. If you are seeing in textbooks, then you know that a, a particular type of anemia is called anemia of chronic disease. Just think in the back of your mind that that's probably uh, has a lot to do with the inflammatory state in the body. And I'm going to say too, that can be transient. So you'd never just treat that if somebody doesn't have a history of inadequate intake or bleeding, mm-hmm. and they come up with this inflammatory anemia. You don't want to treat that with iron. You want to find out what's going on when things kind of calm down because Absolutely. you don't want to give someone iron when they don't need it because remember they can't get rid of it. Yeah, we're kind of jumping the, the gun here a little <laughs> bit. But you know, when a physician orders just a serum iron and maybe a CBC, you're not really getting the full picture of iron metabolism. So we will talk about the biomarkers to take a look at and the five or six biomarkers to include on your iron panel. And we'll kind of finish with just sort of a matrix that we look at between the various different biomarkers and, and how those biomarkers shift with various different iron dysfunctions. So iron deficiency, anemia, hemochromatosis, chronic uh, anemia of chronic disease, or now I'm going to call it inflammatory anemia, <laughs> and those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. But I think one of the things that I've forgotten, again, we forget a lot of biochemistry when we've been out of school <laughs> for a while, is that free iron can actually cause excessive oxidative stress. And iron, as it's carried throughout the body, is bound to prevent that free radical damage. So it's like one of the reasons why high levels of iron in the body can be so detrimental to the liver. And I remember actually one of my very first patients I ever saw in practice when I was out of school, it was one of those mistakes I made without looking at the blood work before the guy came in. And I was a little rushed. His blood work came in and he was sitting down in front of me in the office and we were talking and chit-chatting. And I looked at his blood work and his ALT levels were something like two and a half thousand. And I was like, okay. And his ferritin level was just off the charts as well. His serum ion was off the charts. So luckily, I kind of had a sense that, you know, he was looking at a hemochromatosis. And sure enough, he lived rurally and was on a well and we got the well tested and there was just a plethora of iron in his water. And I asked him about, you know, did he have like a red stain in the sinks? Oh, yeah, there's a red stain. I was wondering what that was. And so we basically told him to get phlebotomy and we were able to sort of back him out of this position. But it was kind of interesting. Um, they might need a liver transplant. I know some yeah. chromatosis that was waiting on a liver transplant. Yeah. yeah. There's a genetic component mm-hmm. to it too, but hey, we're jumping the gun. So I just want to finish this little particular section by looking at how does iron get from food into our bodies? And so really looking at a sort of a matrix here again, daily diet contains roughly 10 to 20 milligrams of iron, but only about one to two milligrams of iron are absorbed. The important hormone protein called transferrin transports iron across the body, and you'll recognize this as one of those biomarkers that we take a look at. We look at percent transferrin saturation, and we also look at transferrin itself. And then of that 1.1 to 2 milligrams of iron a day, 75% contributes to being absorbed and utilizing hemoglobin and erythropoiesis, which is the production of red blood cells. About 10 to 20% of that 1 to 2 milligrams is in the form of ferritin, which is a stored form of iron in the liver and the heart. And then about 5 to 15% is used in other processes. Interestingly enough, body loses about 1 to 2 milligrams of iron a day from desquamation of epithelia. So remembering epithelial cells are not only just in the skin, but also lining of respiratory tract, digestive mm-hmm. system, etc. So as your body sort of loses 
layer. Uh, that layer, thank <laughs> mm -hmm. you. I'm sure the macrophage has probably come and gobble that up as well. So there is some recycling. <laughs> but I think the important part is like one to two milligrams a day comes in, one to two milligrams a day is lost. It doesn't give you very much to store, really. <laughs> I mean, only 10 to 20% of that one to two milligrams is stored as ferritin, and there really is no physiological excretion. So this comes into our first kind of disorder of altered iron metabolism and iron status, which is iron deficiency anemia. And the problem is, is that, like we were just talking about, the amount that you absorb and the amount that you lose is pretty much the same. And therefore, the balance between the two is so important. So Beth, why don't you take us into iron deficiency anemia and some of the findings that you write about in your article? Okay. It is really important. It's actually the most frequently seen nutrient deficiency in the world. So obviously, it's a major issue, and it did lead to some food fortification or enrichment with iron automatically. But someone who doesn't need iron has to be aware of that. But someone who does need iron should be aware that there is some enrichment or fortification in some foods. But it is the most frequently seen nutrient deficiency, so it has to be addressed. And I'm glad we're reminding people of it today and especially how to assess it. Because if you read the signs wrong and you give someone iron where they don't need it, it can be damaging. Mm. But if they do, and they really, they do have iron deficiency anemia, that's when you're going to see a microcytic hypochromic anemia, right? So the small red blood cells that are pale. So small and pale red blood cells. And that's what it was first named. It was microcytic anemia. And it is a hypochromic anemia. So they can tell by just looking at the red blood cells what's going on. Uh, abnormal blood vessel formation can cause excessive bleeding. And this is another major cause of iron deficiency anemia. And I know someone with this, it's called hereditary hemorrhagic telangiectasia, excuse me, we just call it HHT, but it is fairly devastating. They just can't keep enough iron on board because of so much bleeding and have to have IV iron and the ferritin hovers at about four sometimes. So it's really one of the, not a main. If someone does have, you know, it is iron deficiency anemia, of course, you have to look at, you know, what are they consuming? What are they absorbing? What are they losing? And we can talk about that a little bit later when we talk about what inhibits iron absorption. But some of the signs and symptoms of iron deficiency, which are interestingly somewhat the same as iron overload. So again, you need a full blood chemistry workup. But some of the symptoms of iron deficiency can be nonspecific. They can be fatigue. And how many patients go into the doctor's office with fatigue? I'm going to say I probably 90%. 90, 90, 90, 90, 90, 100? Yeah. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so fatigue, you got to find out if this is a cause. Um, it can be shortness of breath, right? Because without the hemoglobin, you're not carrying mm -hmm. oxygen. And mm -hmm. iron is so important to oxygen transport. So they can have be short of breath, have decreased work performance, and even just activity, decreased tolerance for activity in general, but can also have cognitive impairment. Iron is really, really important to the enzymes that we use to make neurotransmitters like serotonin and dopamine. So cognitive impairment, mm -hmm. and especially in a child, that could cause the learning impairment, could lead to learning impairment. So cognitive impairment can be a sign of iron deficiency anemia. The complications of it, because it jeopardizes a lot of the systems in your body, including your immune system. So infections, more frequent infections can be a sign, cardiovascular issues, congestive heart failure, increased hospital complications. If somebody's really sick and needs to go into the hospital and they have iron deficiency anemia, that can increase length of stay 
which increases the cost of the bill. So even somebody that's very conscious of <laughs> financial aspects of it, you always want to reduce length of stay in a hospital. So iron deficiency anemia should be evaluated for. And again, inflammatory anemia shouldn't be mistaken for iron deficiency mm-hmm. anemia. So mm-hmm. a full workup is is indicated. So there are a lot of the developmental delay, pregnancy complications, depression, a tinnitus, a tinnitus, which I have, so I've had so many years, but that could be a sign of iron deficiency anemia, headaches, pallor, you know, again, fatigue, not being able to do anything, not being able to think straight, even behavioral problems, and not just in children, but in adults. So behavioral problems could be a sign. So Really, people should be screened at least annually. And mm-hmm. of course, we like to look, I like to say every six months would be ideal. If you are treating a problem that is nutrient-related or iron-related, should be looked at at least every six months or more. The craving pica, we call it pagophagia pica, craving for non-food items or chewing ice is a sign too. And I, as a kid, I had iron deficiency anemia. And my mom had to hide the no more tangles because I liked the taste of it. Oh, and wow. I know. And the little things that you wash up with, like after a meal, they give you the little wet wipes. I used to like those. Oh so gosh. Wow, I know yeah. I was a weirdo, but I did have iron deficiency <laughs> anemia and, yeah, you know, it yeah. finally got treated. But it was one of those things, you know, if you have GI problems, you're going to end up with probably iron problems and other nutrient issues. So, so that craving for non-food items, like no more tangles, if it's even out there anymore. Ding, ding. You know, make sure you're yeah. looking at your kid's blood work. <laughs> chalk is interesting. Chalk, yeah. I was a oh, you know, colored chalk. Oh my gosh. What's well, I'm you know having been in English boarding school from the age of eight mm. and pretty much being on a nutrient deprivation program for <laughs> <laughs> my first five years of boarding school. Well, I actually remember the smell of chalk mm-hmm. being like almost the smell of really delicious food, and it's almost as if you'd want to just. I mean, I probably do remember chewing on it to some extent. Oh my I wonder gosh. if I was that deficiency. Check your anyway. iron. Maybe, yeah. Was like, I was probably deficient in everything. But anyway, <laughs> that's my little personal story about chewing chalk. <laughs> yeah. But you've stopped doing that, right? I have stopped doing that. Me yeah. too. Me yeah. too. <laughs> oh, oh so here's a picture. A spoon-shaped nail, too. So go make yeah. sure you go to the blog to see what a spoon-shaped nail looks like because you hear about it all the time. It looks kind of like a spoon or a little valley, maybe. But it's something you can see, and that can be part of a nutrition-based physical assessment because mm. you can look at people's right nails and their eyes and the corners of their mouths and their skin, yeah. and that can be part of a physical that should yeah, be done. Yeah, the nutritional basis. physical, is what we mm-hmm. call it, yeah. So, and then the neurotransmitter issue, emotional state, serotonin is involved in your emotional state. So with a deficiency of iron, you don't have serotonin metabolism imbalance, and you can have changes in emotional states. And dopamine, the main neurotransmitter of the motivational component of reward and reinforcement. And dopamine helps you think and focus. Mm -hmm. And without enough iron, you're not producing those neurotransmitters because you don't have the iron for the hydroxylases that produce those neurotransmitters. Yeah, so behavioral issues, mood issues, Mm -hmm. all of that. And that's why a good blood chemistry screen, which we always recommend, and an advanced iron panel could pick this up in someone if you have any suspicion that somebody is suffering from this. Yeah. So, but not just one biomarker, not just one single biomarker. It has right. to be the whole panel because, again, you can have a low serum iron, but a high ferritin in storage that can happen during infection. So, never treat, you know, never give iron just because the serum iron was low. You have to look at serum iron, ferritin, and transferrin saturation 
by kind of the three biggies. And mm-hmm. I know we're going to have this table up available in the blog that people can go into more in detail. But the stages of iron deficiency, it's important to know the stages because you might not even have physical symptoms until stage four or even stage five. So yeah. all this stuff is going on in the background biochemically. Stage one, two, and three, you can pick that up. You can pick up the deficiency at those stages, but you have to be looking at the right thing. So don't wait until somebody is weak and dizzy and they can't function. They have pallor and even restless leg syndrome can be a sign of a stage five iron deficiency anemia. So yeah, it's so, so important because then you can go into damage to the GI lining, cardiac mm-hmm. failure. It can be fatal. I mean, it's one of those, I think, just looking at the, and again, go over to the blog because the mm-hmm. stages are written out there. And I think one of the things that really struck me was this is why we do functional blood chemistry mm-hmm. analysis, because yeah. if we have the ability to be able to identify stage one, stage two, stage three, based upon not out of normal ranges, but out of optimal ranges, mm-hmm. we have an opportunity, I think, to intervene when it is relatively easy. It's never easy to correct nutritional deficiencies, really, because there's mm-hmm. so many things going on, but it's easier rather than waiting until a stage five. And I'll give you an example. So, yeah, my mom has been dealing with some health issues, and and one of which is she has low red blood cells. And so I'm always asking her, listen, can you ask your doctor to do a full CBC with an iron panel? And they never do. Never. And the only biomarker that they will run is a hemoglobin. And they're using hemoglobin to tell whether or not she's making adequate number of red blood cells. And she's dizzy. She's a little bit fatigued, you know, I mean, she's amazing. She's about to turn 80 and walks three, four miles a day and is very active given her health condition. But this is just one of those areas. And we actually ended up, and this is just an aside here, she went to do hyperbaric oxygen. And so she did 10 sessions, I think they're like an hour of being under pressure. And she said it was amazing, the benefits. So it was pretty cool. But anyway, I guess the take home point is like, and I talk about this in the training programs and stuff and people, it's like this whole concept, the nightmare of yet, which is one yes. of the things that one of my mentors, Greg Graham, was always talking about, the nightmare of yet. It's like, oh, you don't have iron deficiency anemia yet. Well, we're going to yes. wait until you do because, you know, your iron's not quite there and your ferritin's not quite there. And that's too late. If you're dealing yeah. with, if I'm looking here, stage five, iron deficiency affecting tissues, manifesting as major physical signs and symptoms, dizziness, fatigue. You know, you're starting to see major microcytosis and hyperchromia Uh appearing. I mean, that's stage four. Let's deal with this before that actually starts to happen. That's responsible medicine, right? That is responsible responsible medicine. medicine. Yeah. 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 Um, We get frustrated. (laughs) Yeah, we get frustrated. I guess the point is, and we'll talk about biomarkers in a few moments, is don't just order one biomarker. Don't just order Uh hemoglobin. Don't just order iron. Do your patients a favor. Uh Be a detective. Work out. Mm, I think this is going on. Do them a favor, order a full CBC, order a full iron panel. Again, we'll talk about which biomarkers to look at. And And I want to say too, most states allow you to order, you can pay out of pocket. It is out of pocket, but you can order a wide range of blood work for yourself or your physician or the healthcare practitioner can order it in almost all but three states. So if it's not ordered through insurance, they don't want to pay you, then make you, they charge you too much because they didn't want to pay the whole bill then it can be very affordable. And especially mm-hmm. if you pick up something yeah, that is chronic like this, it can yeah. be fixed. So for those of you in the US, that would be labs like direct labs, life extensions, Ultra, um, mm-hmm. Ultra labs, mm-hmm. 
So there's, there are companies that will allow you as a patient to order blood work. Uh, so if you and the are, practitioner too, mm-hmm. and the practitioner, yeah, yeah. yeah. So if you're a non-licensed practitioner, you mm-hmm. can order that. But like I said, we'll talk about the biomarkers to include, and you know, go over to the blog, and there's a really good table that you can actually. I'm not saying we should self-diagnose, but it's like yeah, yeah, that's get true. You, but have the data, get the data, have the, have the data, yeah, yeah, and then take that to a responsible practitioner. So disorder that's kind of like the flip side of iron mm-hmm. deficiency anemia is iron overload, which is basically the excess storage of iron. We talked about how the two major organs for storing iron would be the liver and the heart. But when you mm-hmm. have excess iron floating around your body, it can also cause damage to things like the pancreas. Bing, 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 bing. Mm-hmm. Uh, type 2 diabetes, mm-hmm. diabetes. <laughs> you know. yeah. And other endocrine glands. It can disrupt the gastrointestinal mucosa, can impair immune surveillance. And why would somebody have iron overload? It's mm-hmm. much more common in men. Mm-hmm. Uh, men don't have that, especially for women during their menstrual phases of their life, are losing Plus. iron on a regular basis. Men just don't do that. And so if you're... That's iron, why they fight. That's why they that's fight. That's why they fight. <laughs> <laughs> <Bloody> noses. <laughs> yeah, that's why you punch someone in the nose. Yeah, I'm doing you a favor. So when iron intake, remember we were talking about you have one to two milligrams of iron is absorbed and your homeostasis of iron, you're losing between one to two and desquamation of your epithelial cells. Well, if your iron intake is above a particular level, or if you have maybe an accidental overdose, I don't know why someone would have an accidental overdose, but... uh, Well, children, I want to say, though, that is one of the number one causes of death for children, the overdose on iron supplements, even multivitamins with iron. Really? Yeah. Wow. Excessive blood transfusions it's associated with different types of anemia. We don't really have time to go into these, but things mm-hmm. like thalassemia, sideroblastic mm-hmm. anemia. But I think probably the, the main one, there's two different forms of iron overload. There's hemochromatosis and hemosiderosis. Mm-hmm. Hemochromatosis often associated with mutations in a particular gene, the HFE gene, is accompanied by increased inflammation and oxidative stress. It is the most severe form of hereditary iron overload, hemochromatosis. And the thing that you're going to look for is a notably elevated ferritin and transferrin saturation. Mm-hmm. So those would be the two biomarkers that you're going to take a look at. Interestingly enough, hemochromatosis, and Beth alluded to this, presents with the same chronic fatigue associated mm-hmm. with iron deficiency anemia. So don't just go along with the symptomatic aspects mm-hmm. of whether or not a patient goes, oh, I'm really fatigued. Oh, let's just give you some iron. Well, that may not no. be the right thing to do. Right. <laughs> Early stages of iron overload may not be associated with overt dysfunction, but things like supplementation with iron or even vitamin C can promote its progression in susceptible individuals. And in a lot of cases, phlebotomy is often required to reduce iron overload. Hemosiderosis is a form of iron overload characterized by excess iron storage in the body. It's associated with an overdose of iron-containing supplements. That was, I think, the situation that I saw in clinic where the guy was cooking with iron cookware, mm-hmm. drinking water that had iron in it, mm-hmm. and slowly but surely it built up. So that's more of a hemosiderosis. It wasn't a genetic component. We have a list of some of the signs and symptoms of inherited iron overload, things like abnormal liver function. So looking at the liver panel like I saw, mm-hmm. the effect of that iron excess in that guy's body was affecting his liver. and He was causing liver damage and therefore secreting levels of ALT. It's also associated with, um, you know, arrhythmias because of the heart, cardiomyopathy, like we said, chronic fatigue, depression, and things like that. Even joint pain and arthritis could yeah, be yeah. a sign, yeah. 
Yeah. And some people, I know someone that had it, he knew his two brothers had it, but they did blood work on him and said, oh, you don't have it. But then yeah. realized years later, he went back and like, oops, sorry, you do have it. Yeah. So he'd have some of these symptoms and then they say, no, no, you're good. So they weren't looking at the right iron oh panel, God. obviously, and then realized down the road that it, it was hemochromatosis all along. And by then he needed a liver transplant. Gosh. And he's gone now, but he had the bronzing of the skin. That was noticeable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I remember that. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's talk about biomarkers of iron status. And I think the important aspect of this, going back to that earlier conversation that we had around the stages, if you identify something early, both maybe it be an iron insufficiency, maybe it's not an overt deficiency at this particular time, and it may be just building up of iron overload, identifying it in the earlier stages will prevent the progression to a more life-threatening changes. And so I'm just going to list the biomarkers that we're going to look at. And they fall into two camps. One is an iron panel, and the other is red blood cell count as part of a complete blood count or a CBC or a hematology panel. So the iron biomarkers that we want to look at will be serum iron, ferritin, transferrin, iron binding capacity, or TIBC, or total iron binding capacity, and then the transferrin saturation. Those would be the five key ones to take a look at. And then on a CBC, we'll be looking at hemoglobin. We'd be looking at MCV, which is the one that tells us about the might, the size of the red blood cells. That would be microcytosis or a small cell would be a low MCV, countering that with an elevated MCV or a large cell, which is part of B12 deficiency anemia. And then we would also look at MCH or mean corpuscular hemoglobin, and then looking at red blood cell size and color. And also probably red blood cell count to some extent. Mm -hmm. So that would be all part of just your regular CBC. Anything you want to like dive into in this particular section, Beth? Wow. And we covered a lot. And some of it is so detailed. It's not something that somebody wants to hear and try to memorize. It's something I go, even that chart, you know, you go back to that. You want to go back to that. Don't try to memorize this. So mm. I think we could probably jump to that. Okay. Instead of um, <laughs> just kind of looking here. So. The chart that we were looking at, and we were talking about, we look at the iron biomarkers and to some extent the CBC. So we're going to be looking at those same biomarkers that I just mentioned, serum iron, ferritin, transferrin, percent transferrin saturation, and total iron binding capacity, or TIBC. Those are the five iron biomarkers. And then we look at RDW, hemoglobin, MCV, and MCH. And then we look at, there's two main conditions that we've talked about, which are the iron deficiency anemia, and then looking at iron overload. And then we kind of like right at the beginning, we threw out this whole idea of sort of anemia, chronic disease or inflammatory anemia. And then there's hemolytic anemia, which is basically you're losing, you're having hemolysis in your, in your body. You're basically losing, you're bleeding, I guess. Mm -hmm. Is that how you sort of describe And the breakdown, the breakdown of the red blood cell itself Excessive too. breakdown, yeah. And so what happens is that each of these four conditions has an impact on a particular biomarker. And I'll give you an example. So serum iron, depending on the stage that someone is, remember we were talking about those five stages of iron deficiency anemia, typically your serum iron and iron deficiency anemia is going to be decreased. Now the severity of that decrease might be varying. Like for instance, stage one, you might start seeing a slight decrease in your serum iron. Stage two, you're definitely starting to see more profound decrease in your serum iron. However, in anemia of chronic disease or inflammatory anemia, your serum iron actually may be normal, or it mm -hmm. might be decreased. And then the flip side, if you're looking at hemolytic anemia and your iron overload hemochromatosis, your serum iron is going to be increased. 
So next would be ferritin. Ferritin, the main storage form of iron, is typically going to be decreased in iron deficiency anemia. It will typically be increased in the iron anemia or chronic disease or an inflammatory anemia. It's also going to be increased in hemolytic anemia. It will be increased in iron overload. So you can start seeing a pattern here. So if you're looking at your results and you go serum iron decreased, ferritin decreased, well, you know, you're now moving the needle in the direction of like iron deficiency anemia, yeah. Yeah. right? So that's kind of how real this, key. Yeah. yeah, which is real key. Then we're looking at like transparin, which uh, is an important transporting iron, typically going to be increased in iron deficiency anemia, going to be decreased in the other three. So you see this sort of reciprocal view, what happens mm-hmm. in iron deficiency anemia, typically the biomarkers are going to be the opposite for these other conditions. And it's not always the case, but mm-hmm. in some of these situations. Percent transferrin saturation, how much of the transferrin is saturated with iron? Typically low in iron deficiency anemia, typically low in anemia or chronic disease, typically increased in hemolytic anemia and iron overload. So like you said, Beth, it's rather than just like running through this, <laughs> are there any, I mean, I'm just kind of curious, are there any things uh. that stand out to you, given the, the types of questions that we've had? For, so some of the questions, for instance, I have a patient with low serum iron, but high serum ferritin. <laughs> you know, what is that? Yes. Well, it's like, you're storing it. You're storing it, yeah, trying to get it out of the right, bloodstream exactly. and into storage. But I thought, too, that hemoglobin is interesting. The decrease, it's not decreased into the latter stages of iron deficiency anemia. And that is hemoglobin sometimes is one of the only things like the World Health Organization might have on hand, and they only look at the hemoglobin. So if they see a decrease, then you know you're. Well, that's in probably why my stage. mom's doctor is only looking at hemoglobin, right? Because yeah, you know, wait until it's too late. Wait until it's too late. Yeah. It, that kind of brings up something that one of my early mentors, Stephen Sandberg Lewis, who's a really brilliant naturopath professor at my alma mater, National University of Naturopathic Medicine, in, sorry, Natural Medicine in Portland. He always said to me, one of the things that I picked up from him is the body will do whatever it can to keep the blood as clean as possible. And if you think about sort of how important it is that your red blood cells carry hemoglobin and what, how important that is for human physiology, that the body will almost go and rob the storage cupboards in order to mm-hmm. make sure that the hemoglobin is, there's yeah. enough hemoglobin in the red blood cells. So that's why... Oxygen you, transport. Yeah, mm-hmm. oxygen transport. Mm-hmm. So that's why if you're just looking at hemoglobin as a reference for whether or not someone's iron deficiency anemia, you're, gonna, you're missing the boat because you're not mm-hmm. looking at the cupboard, you're not looking at the hemoglobin that's <laughs> exactly. being, or the iron that's being transported around the body. It might be too late at that yes. point. Not, it's never too late, but you, know, you do not want to be doing iron injections. You do not want to be doing radical iron therapy in order mm-hmm. to bring your iron levels up. Right. Did you ever do any of that in your work in the hospitals? No IV iron that I recall. Like I know no. a few people personally that have had to have it done for different reasons, but not in the hospital. You know, in, like trauma ICU, they're getting blood all the time. And right, right. So it could be a way not to... Not just an IV of, of yeah. iron. All right. Helps us jump on to our final stage here, which is how do you address an altered iron status? So, okay, we've got two major altered iron statuses, too much iron, too little iron. So why don't you walk through some of the findings that you okay. kind of came up and looking at it sort of through your nutritionist lens. And I think everybody now in healthcare is blaming everything on inflammation. So that's one of the first places to start, I think, <laughs> is to make sure you're taking into account inflammation. It's so common. Right. Uh, people on a pro-inflammatory diet. So just to say that before you start to increase their dietary iron or cooking in iron 
cookware because if inflammation is present and your body's just trying to, you know, pull iron out of the bloodstream and you're missing the fact that, you know, inflammation is a cause, you might be overdosing someone with iron. So make sure that you know what you're looking at. And if it's really iron deficiency anemia, check to see what's going in and what's staying in and what's going mm-hmm. out, right? So what are they consuming? Are there a lot of inhibitors that are consuming with iron because that can inhibit the absorption? And again, uh, GI problems, inflammation of the GI tract physically can inhibit iron absorption. And again, what stays in? So we look at the blood work then and, and are they losing anything? Is there, mm-hmm. you know, possibly a source of bleeding? So if you can try to identify the, the cause, then it's easier to address it. But, but if they do need iron, supplementation, you start with dietary iron can be increased, you know, especially with heme iron from animal sources. If someone does consume animal sources, you know, meat, tuna fish is high, actually fish, Mm -hmm. tuna fish, chicken, heme sources are more easily absorbed. Non-heme iron can come from animal and plant-based sources. But the non-heme iron, like if someone's a vegetarian or a vegan and they don't consume any animal products, they're only going to get non-heme iron, which is a little bit harder to absorb. But you can kind of increase the bioavailability with especially vitamin C at the meal. And if someone's not a vegetarian, just adding some meat, fish, or poultry to the meal can actually increase the non-heme iron absorption. And that is recommended if they really, really, truly need it. If they just can't absorb enough, then they might need IV iron. Or there might be an increase or need an increase of oral iron supplementation. Again, you don't want to overdose somebody. It's just short term and you watch carefully and monitor carefully and then you stop the oral iron as soon as they are recovered, if they are recovered. But ferrous sulfate, which was always the go-to supplement, can cause nausea and constipation. So they realized sometimes back that iron that's chelated with like a Krebs cycle intermediate, amino acids, something like ferrous glycinate or bisglycinate is actually better tolerated and it causes fewer gastrointestinal side effects. Because, you know, if you give somebody something and they get sick or they feel sick from it, they're not going to take it. You won't have compliance. So they're better tolerated and their bioavailability is a little bit better too, because so you'll actually absorb more when you have an amino acid chelate. Things that can inhibit iron absorption would be calcium, phosphates, phytate, and oxalate are kind of the main ones. We will have a whole list in the blog of other things that can inhibit iron absorption. Bioavailability of food iron can be increased by fermenting, sprouting, or even soaking grains and nuts and seeds and legumes. And that will increase the bioavailability of the non-heme iron. If you add some heme iron, again, only from animal products, at the same meal, you'll increase the non-heme iron absorption as well. Cooking in iron pans, the good old-fashioned, we have one. I got it from my friend who had hemochromatosis. I said, you don't need this, and I took it. So cooking in, because I need it. So cooking in iron pans can increase the absorption. Actually, drying fruit, too, I didn't mention it in the blog, but drying fruit on iron pans can increase, like raisins. You dry your grapes on an iron pan, mm-hmm. and the raisins will have a little bit more iron in them. I thought that was interesting. Interesting, yeah. Yeah. Zinc competes with iron for absorption, so you want to consume that as a supplement separately. Uh, Riboflavin and vitamin A deficiency can also impair iron utilization. So even if you absorbed enough, other nutrient deficiencies can inhibit the utilization of iron. So again, we're coming right back to balance. It's always about balance. Again, we have this list, but just briefly, I'll talk about iron absorption is inhibited by an alkaline 
GI pH. So when you're reducing the acid in the stomach, then the it's an alkaline environment and that will inhibit your iron absorption. Coffee and tea, when you take it at the same time, can inhibit it. Divalent cations like calcium, zinc, we talked about. Manganese also. Oxalates, a lot of oxalates like in spinach, so that can inhibit iron absorption. Phytates, polyphenols, tannins. And I thought this was interesting, just specific proteins, because remember some of the animal-based proteins, you know, meat, fish, poultry, that will increase the absorption. But specific proteins can inhibit the absorption of iron. And that would include casein, whey, so mm-hmm. you got your milk proteins, your dairy proteins, egg, albumin, and soybean protein can all inhibit iron absorption. Now, if you're in iron balance, it might not matter so much, but if you're trying to absorb more iron, then you do want to pay close attention to that. Uh, increasing the acidity of the GI or the stomach, really, at that point, will increase iron absorption. So it's facilitated by an acidic GI or stomach acid. Ascorbate, so vitamin C, can increase absorption of non-heme iron specifically. Citrate, we talked about fish meat and poultry. Sugars like fructose and sorbitol can actually facilitate iron absorption. I thought that was kind of interesting. And then we have a list of specific foods where you can get iron and what might inhibit iron. And Mm -hmm. briefly, we can just talk about the heme iron you're going to get from oysters, liver, lean red meat, poultry, preferably grass-fed. Uh, poultry, the dark meat portion. People are like, oh, dark meat is bad for the chicken. No, it's actually where the iron is. So mm-hmm. if you need iron, eat the dark meat. And if you like chicken, it actually tastes better. Tuna fish and salmon. So your fish is a good source of heme iron. Non-heme iron you get from iron-fortified cereals. Remember, they add iron back to especially fortified or enriched flour products. Dried beans and legumes, whole grains. And if you soak those, you increase the availability. And nuts as well, almonds and Brazil nuts. The dried fruits, I did mention here, but prunes, raisins, and apricots when they're dried on iron pans. And some vegetables for your non-heme iron would include broccoli, greens, spinach, like kale, collards, asparagus, and dandelion greens, which we used to actually go out in the front yard and pick dandelion greens for a dandelion green salad. It was great as a kid. That's what we did. Nice sauce. It's actually edible. Isn't it good? good? Make wine too. Very good. So that's, oh, inhibitors, inhibitors of non-heme iron. Oxalate mm-hmm. or oxalic acid, again, not just in spinach, but it's in chocolate. So have your chocolate separately. Phytic acid or phytates, tannins would be in tea, polyphenols and coffee, and calcium in food or supplements can inhibit iron absorption. So be aware of that. As a practitioner, you want to make sure you're making your clients aware of this so that, you know, you're not jeopardizing the absorption. You're giving them all this good iron, but it's being inhibited as far as its absorption. So. Iron overload, you know, you want to restrict all those things (laughs) with iron in them. And chelation therapy, you know, might be indicated. Donating blood regularly helps or full-on phlebotomy, you know, for someone with hemochromatosis. So you have to get rid of the iron in that case. So again, there's no just regular excretion mechanism. You have to pull it out of there. And they do pull out a lot. With a weekly phlebotomy for hemochromatosis, they can Mm -hmm. take almost, you know, two cups of blood out. And that will pull about 200 to 250 milligrams of iron. So chelation of the iron in the blood as well is another option. Lobotomy almost seems a little bit barbaric, but, but it works. Yeah. And that's what they have to do. I think it's they like, use you know, defroxamine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that has the ferrous in there. Yeah. So yeah, they use defroxamine. So pulls, so. Yeah. And they watch too when they're doing that. They'll watch the blood work and see if it's doing the trick. They want to decrease the serum ferritin down mm-hmm. to 50 to 150 is acceptable. 
and a transfer and saturation below 45%. So we have something to look at if you're doing chelation or phlebotomy or what have you. Folks have to really be monitored, you know? Mm-hmm. You don't want to cause another problem. So I think that's, gosh, that kind of wraps yeah, it up. definitely wraps <laughs> it up. So part seven of our article is the ODX optimal takeaways. So feel free to go jump in there and you just kind of get a little bit of a summary of everything that we've covered. But thank you, Beth, for all your hard work on diving deep into iron metabolism. Um, if you're interested in Optimal DX and what we do, please come over to OptimalDX.com. One of the things that we've just released, actually, after a six month of, we use the word deep dive all the time, but this really is a deep dive into, into come up for air. <laughs> 200 and something biomarkers. We just released our ODX biomarker guide. Come over to the website and you can see that. It's, um, it's all a online. referenced list of all of the biomarkers, the ODX ranges we use and the substantiation with mm-hmm. space research. So really a cool, I think, cool way of looking at biomarkers and looking at the work that we do in functional blood chemistry analysis, because I think it's the best entry-level test that anybody could be doing. We should all be running chem screens and CBCs on our oh, patients yeah. doing a functional analysis, because it really gives you the lay of the land. And you can either treat presumptively from that, or you could start ordering some a more advanced testing if they're needed. But it's just this great mm-hmm. window into past, present, and potentially even future outcomes. Yeah. Kind of like looking under the hood, right? If you bring your car in and the guy doesn't look under the hood, <laughs> yeah. you know, he's not looking far enough to see what the problem is. Yeah, it's like, you know, if you just, I don't know if you've probably taken your vehicle to oil can Henry or, you know, those mm-hmm. oil, and they're, they're looking at like 32 or 42 point check up it's always the kind of annoying up, yeah. they knock on your window and go here's here's the fluids in your whatever and it looks really cruddy and then well this is what it should look like do you want me to replace it well how much is it 65 bucks okay go ahead <laughs> or oh, your air filter looks like this but it could look like this <laughs> so, we could do that uh, with humans right no, we could do that with humans right so in some <laughs> but we're ways, doing it <laughs> yeah, right. cbc and chem screen 72 or i guess it's now we can look up to like 120 different biomarkers with the ratios and things that we look at in mm-hmm. Anyway, if you have any topics or areas that you think that we would could cover in our podcast, why not shoot us yes. an email to support at yes. OptimalTX and let us know. So this is the end of 2023. Holiday season is upon us. If you're interested in articles on how to eat during the holidays, Beth's written some at ODX. It could the ODX blog. She's got some cool little articles on on how to navigate the holidays in a safe and balance way, in a balanced way because it's <laughs> mm-hmm. all about balance. Beth, I thank you very much for all of your hard work at Optimal DX in 2023 and all the amazing research articles you've produced and the ODX oh, biomarker guide. You really are uh, such a great asset to us all. So thank you so much. Thank, thank all you. of you for listening. And if you're interested in what we're doing, come on over to OptimalDX.com. We're here to provide you with as much information as we possibly can. And then if you want to jump in and have an ODX account with us, 20 bucks a month to have your account. Uh, It's not that expensive. (laughs) And we're going to be doing some more resources within the ODX platform itself. Thanks for everybody for joining us. Mm -hmm. Any parting words, Beth? Happy holidays to all you humans from Earth. Everybody, yay. Yay. (laughs) Happy holidays to you all. Thanks so much for listening. My name is Dr. Dickon Weatherby. You've been listening to Optimal, the podcast. Wishing you very happy holidays and we'll see you in 2024. 